Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Yugambeh people, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. My name's Nicole Bennett, and I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We're one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the challenges and opportunities ahead. So let's take a minute from our busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode 23 for season two. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by a legend in the planning sphere, Kerry Doss. Kerry has established a really strong reputation as an experienced urban planner and leader throughout his career. Kerry has in excess of 33 years experience in Queensland and New South Wales. Prior to establishing his own consultancy firm, he was the state planner for five years, heading up the planning group within the state government. In this role, Kerry oversaw the planning system, delivering planning services, managing legislation, regional planning, managing the state assessment and referral agency, planning policy and strategy development, and advice on planning matters across the state and to the 77 local governments across Queensland. Prior to this role, Kerry headed up Brisbane City Council's city planning and economic development area for 10 years. As Brisbane's most senior planner, he was responsible for overseeing the planning of Brisbane, including urban design, infrastructure planning, regional and strategic planning, neighbourhood planning, urban renewal, heritage and economic development. Throughout his long career, Kerry has been committed to professional development and has an active role in the Planning Institute of Australia, including being recognised as a Fellow of the Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Kerry. How are you today? I'm really good, Nicole, and uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to come on the podcast. And may I congratulate you on your 21st, 23rd episode. It's a fantastic initiative um, and um, I'd encourage more people to do this sort of thing. Oh, thanks, Kerry. It's it's the 23rd for this year. I did 18 last year, Ooh, so okay. we're, we're over 40 now. So it, <laughs> it's it's a bit crazy, um, but I, I'm thrilled to have someone like you agree to join me on the podcast because I think um, your planning brain is as good as any and, you know, being able to get that um, intel out there and for others to understand kind of the experiences and and um, knowledge that you have is just invaluable. So I really appreciate your time today. Um, I've got a few questions here for you and I'm hoping we get through them because they're quite large, as you can imagine. It was it was a hard thing um, sitting down and, and wondering what would I ask um, someone who's got such a, a diverse and senior um, level of experience in our, in our planning profession. So I have narrowed it down to about six themes. So, the first I wanted to ask you, though, was around your role, um, your your last role as Queensland State Planner, something that you held for five years, and immediately before that, um, as Brisbane's most senior planner for 10 years. So that's, you know, a total of about 15 years of public service in the two most prominent planning roles in Queensland, arguably. Um, and that's a significant effort and contribution to planning, um, but broader than planning as well. What did you enjoy most about your time in those roles and, and what made public service such a rewarding career? 
Okay, uh, thanks for that question, Nicole. Um, yeah, uh, it's a really interesting one, and I could talk about it for, for ages, but I'll try and distill it down for you. Um, look, just going back to the BCC role, that um, that role was really quite special. It's, I think it's the only role like it in Australia. If It's true metropolitan and city-scale planning. If you look at all of the other capital cities in Australia, they've got, um, I think Sydney's got about 40 local governments in the same area as Brisbane and Melbourne, 20-something. So dealing with things on that scale is was just a fantastic opportunity and it really makes you think strategically. I, I think one of the great things about Brisbane was the amalgamation of some 20 or so local governments in 1926 and I think that's the model that it, it gives you for planning is fantastic. Um, look, in, in that time, it was the ability to affect change. And I think um, that in planning, you've got to stay the course. Um, good policy doesn't just happen in a year or two years. It's five and it's 10 and it's 15. So that 10 years I spent um, well, it was actually longer because before I was head of planning, I headed up the infrastructure team in council and it was my second time around after being a private consultant and um, just the ability to stay the course and to steer good policy over time because you have political cycles and you might have a change of government and uh, just convincing different um levels uh, different politicians over time that a policy is worth sticking to um I, I think some of the other things that made that role really quite exciting is it was coupled with the economic development role and i think planning has everything to do with economic development and um, it, it took a while when i first took over the economic development portfolio um, finding a common language between the uh, economists and the planners and um, one of the projects which I, I was really quite proud of was um, Burnett Lane. We saw an opportunity there and we carried out the upgrades in Burnett Lane and if you walk down Burnett Lane now there are all these holes in the wall which used to be vacant space which are thriving little cafes and bars and restaurants and there's artwork and to the economists, that's an economic development project, but to yeah. the urban designers, it's an urban design project and it's yeah. really both. And yeah. seeing things like that, being able to do that and um, delivery of urban design projects, so the suburban centres improvement projects, taking old strips shopping centres and revitalising those. So it's not only just making the plan, it's having um, you know, talking to the community about what the plan might lead to and then actually doing things which start to implement that plan. And once um, a council can show, you know, uh, not only say it's going to do something, but lead the change in those areas, that's pretty exciting. Um, mm -hmm. One of the other things about Brisbane was the neighbourhood planning project. Um, one of the difficulties of planning at a citywide scale is making citywide and strategic policy, um, making it, uh, grounding it at a local level. And the neighbourhood planning process, um, that really 
revitalise the way that um, that we engaged with the community and spoke to them about some of the big issues about growth for Brisbane and then how you actually accommodate that in their suburbs. And um, it was really um, good to talk to, to people initially, you know, they were hesitant about growth and change and towards the end, them saying, oh, well, what about this and what about that? And some of it was self-interest, but some of it was people actually getting above their own personal needs and thinking a bit more strategically. And that that was quite rewarding. Um, in terms of the state role, um, Queensland is a huge state and that's both the tyranny of distance is a challenge, mm. but it also makes the, um, the, you know, setting policy and implementing policy really interesting. Um, if you look at, um, you know, what's an issue in Brisbane isn't an issue in Longreach or Cairns or somewhere else. And so that variety of policy was was really interesting. And then how do you make that matter? And the, role, the, the way I looked at the role was um, that uh, our team in, in state government, we were partners with the local governments and partners out there. And we were collaborators because those local governments know their local area much, much better than we do. And mm. um, so you really can't dictate. It's about listening to them and then helping them to implement what you might require of state policy and finding things that, that worked. So that was um, that was pretty exciting stuff. Um, one of the other things which was really powerful is about, you know, if you really want to make something happen in state government, um, you you can and and one of the examples was when when COVID broke out, we didn't have um, controls in the in the Planning Act which allowed emergency uses to be set up rapidly. And the Planning Minister at the time, um, Cameron Dick, asked us to think about what we might be able to do to help respond to the COVID emergency. And so we had an idea. We pitched it to the minister's office on on the Friday, and they said, "Right, okay, make it happen." So we worked all weekend um, and drafted up amendments to the Planning Act. Uh, we had those finished by the Sunday afternoon. Um, the they were introduced into Parliament on the following Tuesday, debated on the Tuesday, and passed on the Wednesday, and implemented on the Thursday. So. Um, if you really, you know, that that was incredible. It was absolutely amazing to be part of, and it made a difference. It was leading practice in Australia at the time. And so that stuff is, you know, you, you're kind of pinching yourself because mm. at any other time, if you said to everyone would have said, no, it can't happen, but uh, we needed to respond and we had support from the Premier down and we made it happen. And that, that was that was just just incredible stuff. So, you know, in, in terms of public service, um, I think it's an honourable profession. Um, I've worked in private practice and I've worked in, in local government and state government. Um, and I've seen people in all of those realms work hard and be dedicated to what they do. Of course, they're motivated by different things, but it is a rewarding career. Um, 
There's the ability to in, influence other parts of your organisation and other parts of government because planning is, um, you know, it's a it's a, a lot of our tools are fairly weak. So you've got to look at all the policy levers that you can uh, bring to bear to an issue. Um, you see a tangible difference on the ground. Now, I spoke about the COVID legislation example, but um, in Brisbane following the 2011 floods, um, we brought in a temporary local planning instrument um, uh, with, to deal with flooding issues, and, and that has created a strong backbone for flooding controls. Um, you know, adding vibrancy to places, actually seeing things on the ground. And I think one of the things, um, again, I spoke about planning, good planning policy taking a number of years to come into play. If you can be a steward of that policy over time um, and, and keep policy direction going, you, you actually see, you can actually see things happen on the ground and um, then you hand it over to someone else. It's like a real you pass the baton mm. and hope that they continue that policy on it and make it happen. Because if you look at the great cities around the world and great places, um, they haven't happened in five or 10. They've happened over 20, 30, 50, hundreds of years. So, mm. you know, as, as a public servant, you can play a, a really key role in that. Yeah, I love it. It's... um. It summarised so well. So thank you for for that answer. I I want to sort of um, ask maybe around some of the what I would perceive as some of the challenges and and particularly the difficulty navigating those political and community pressures. So I guess it's really lovely when they come together and they align with planning best practice. And like you mentioned, that example of of doing really quick. Uh, policy and drafting work in order to make a real change through COVID. And that was sort of where the planning uh, and the political will kind of aligned. But I am I guess I'm asking in those circumstances where maybe those political and community pressures don't align with the best practice kind of planning outcome, what's your advice to other people who are navigating that paradigm and kind of trying to steward and steer planning policy through this kind of political mm. and community process? Yeah, look, I think it's that's a really important thing. Um, when I first started out in planning, I didn't think politics played a part in it, but planning is all about politics, whether it's big P politics or small P politics from the community. And um, as a planner, if you ignore that, you are doomed to fail. And I think planners have come a long way. They used to talk about planners in their ivory towers. And they used to, I remember in my early years doing public consultation on planning scheme amendments. And that consisted of putting a really boring ad in the newspaper and putting an A4 copy of the plan on the front counter. Um, thankfully, we, we've come a long way with our engagement tools and how we deal with things. And, um, You've really got to, you know, politics and stakeholders and community have to be on your risk register from day one. And you've got to really break up those stakeholders into how they, you know, what motivates them and why, how do you get messages to them? So it's, um, I think, marketing 101, um, marketing and communication 101 should be part of the planner's portfolio. And 
you know, just as an example, um, the Southport spit, uh, when I first arrived in state government, there'd been a, an election commitment by the Premier that we would do a master plan for the Southport spit and we would resolve all the problems on the spit. And it had been a contested area for God knows how long, probably 20 years. And at the start of the project, I thought, I, I knew the community, there were a range of views. I knew that uh, it would be politically difficult given that we were coming into Gold Coast City Council's area. Um, and there are a number of competing objectives. And if you'd asked me, would we successfully complete that project? I would have said no. But um, one of the one of the important things that we did right at the outset was establish what were the givens, and the givens were um, green space was going to be protected. Um, we had to um, make allowance for the cruise ship terminal that was talked about. Um, we had to allow some development potential and we had to try and keep all of the stakeholders in the tent. And we did that by going through a change management process and getting a, a representative stakeholder group together by keeping in touch with the stakeholders right throughout the process and taking them on a journey. And uh, I remember uh, one day doing a, uh, we, we were doing a, uh, presentation to an industry group uh, on what we were looking at with the, the plan and it was architects, engineers, planners, developers and um, on um, we were being asked a lot of questions and um, there was a, an architect on the coast, Des Brooks, who has apparently done resorts all over the world and he got up and said um, I think what they've done, it's a good plan, it's a good outcome. So I thought that was a, a great outcome. And then someone got up and said, I'm from Save Our Spit. And I thought, oh, God, here we go. And then they said, um, well, I've been involved in this process and I'd just like to say that it's been a really good process and they've listened and I'm happy with where we've gotten to. And in the end, we got a um, a master plan out of a process which um, it appears just about everyone is happy with and we've resolved the conflicts and issues and we've allowed some development and to top that off, um, state government and council have put in money to actually implement a lot of the projects on the spit. So that, that was fantastic, but that looked at the politics, it looked at the community, and it embraced those. It looked at them as both a risk and as an opportunity, mm. and uh, it, it worked on that. The other thing is um, good ideas have their time, and it can be a great idea, but mm. it can be the wrong time. Um, you know, you look at election cycles. Um, politicians don't like controversy leading up to an election, and so you've got to pick the timing of your project as to when it's going to fit. Um, you, you know, there may be another project going on in an area which um, is you can either ride off the back of it or uh, you can stay well away from it. So all of those politics and community are, are really important, um, you know, 
don't think of it as a side thing to do. Um, I think probably good projects are probably about 30% planning um, and 70% project management, risk management um, and facilitation. So that's a pretty important thing to look at. Um, pick your time. Um, it might be a great idea, but the community might not be ready for it or the politics might not be ready for it. Be tactical and agile. If something comes up, you know, um, COVID created an opportunity for us and we took that. The housing crisis gave us an opportunity to set up a growth areas team. Um, you know, if you see something, be prepared for it or get yourself prepared really quickly and be agile. And the other thing is keep your stakeholders in the loop. No one likes to be surprised. Great tips. I love it. So many things come to mind. So many questions that I'd love to ask you. Um, but you did mention that the SPIT uh, took a change management approach. And I'm really keen to pick that up because I know it's something that I've heard you speak about in the past as well, about the role of planners as change managers. You know, what is our role? And do you feel planners are equipped to be change managers? I mean, you would think that the amount of change that we kind of plan for would mean we should be able to do it. But but I'd like to know whether you think we are equipped. Yeah, look, it's... Um... I think it's a it's a fundamental part of it and and probably not too many planners think about what they're doing as a change management process you're going from um, a current state to a future state and um, the way you get there is through change so um, as part of your implementation plan well not even that as part of your whole process that change management process needs to be considered and there's no doubt planners have gotten better at that over time, but I think we need to be better still. Um, as I said previously, a great idea uh, can come unstuck if you don't manage the change properly. And um, you've got to genuinely involve your stakeholders. You've got to segment those stakeholders so you know what matters to them. And you've got to be able to put an idea to them in which addresses that what's in it for me issue and um, we need to be better at it. We, we are we are much better than, well, I know in my career, I've become much better at it. And I know that universities train more in those areas, but I, I think, you know, um, perhaps there's a change management um, course that needs to be built in, given it's such a fundamental tool for planners. Um, one of the examples I, I talk about, um, is a uh, I live on the edge of Maruka Karagindi and there was a retirement village proposed on a bowling club site and the community were quite up in arms about it and they knew some people knew what I did and um, they'd say to me what do you think of this and I'd say well actually I support the idea of a retirement village and they go you know um, why do you support that? And I'd, I'd put it back to them in a manner which was what's in it for me. And you'd say to them, okay, so you love living in this area? And, and the, um, the answer is yes. And I'd say, do you want to stay in this area as you get older? And the answer is usually yes. And then you'd say, okay, do you want to stay in your 
two-story, four-bedroom house as you get older, or would you like to downsize? And the answer was, oh, yeah, probably downsize. And then you'd say to them, can you do that in Tarragindi? And the answer was no. And you'd see the light come on. Um, and um, they, they'd start to think about that 30 years or 20 years forward. And people don't want to think about that. I know I don't want to think about getting older, but you could do that. And you'd say to them, oh, so your parents, do they live in the area? Um, and sometimes they'd say yes. And, and you'd say, um, have you looked at trying to get them into retirement living or aged care? And was it difficult? Oh, yes, it was. Well, again, the light would come on. And and to just talk further about housing choice, you'd say, so your kids live at home with you now. Um, do you want them to stay living with you? And nobody wants that. Um, <laughs> they'd um, then say, you say to them, so do you want them to move out? Yes, they want them to move out. Is there suitable housing nearby? And the, the light would come on. And so you've got to have that, be able to have that individual conversation with people to get to that what's in it for me. And there's an art to that uh, because often in situations, people are, uh, they're stirred up, they're agitated, and there's an art in settling them down and having that conversation. But how do we do that on a, on a mass scale? That's something I think social media can be both a, a help and a hindrance in that regard. Mm. Um, but tailoring the discussion so it gets to those people is really important. And we need to build on those skills. And that public consultation can be a really scary thing. So it's about being comfortable in those environments. And, um, you know, no one does town hall meetings anymore. It's always smaller groups everyone gets to have their say so it's really important to look at that um picking your audience and and picking what matters to them is pretty important stuff to do and and yeah i just think we need the basic skills we are getting better at that we need to think about marketing we need to think about messaging we need to think about making the most of um technology and the like and just getting to those different groups of people and um it you know it's whether we do a good job or a bad job depends on on where we go with the project yeah awesome thank you for that question or that answer i should say um we are quickly running out of time but i do there's two final questions that i'd love to ask you um particularly the, the first one is really topical with the housing crisis and you kind of mentioned the growth areas team um, and how they were established to sort of help with with this housing crisis um i would like to know though with you know the government convening the housing summit recently from your perspective and knowing what you know from the inside i guess what would you say are the key issues and opportunities in solving this housing crisis yeah look I don't think there's any one solution and um, I think it's really important to look more broadly at the issue. Um, I can't actually see where all this demand is coming from and I've been scratching my head about this and I've been reading and some of them, are, some of the commentators are saying that it's actually the government incentives have has brought forward demand and the fact that people weren't spending internationally, but spending mm. domestically, it's pulled that forward. So 
uh, and they're talking about a potential slump uh, mm. mid next year. So it's knowing knowing what's happening over time. But one of the key things I saw for Southeast Queensland is a lot of our growth areas are fragmented and in different ownership and the infrastructure planning and infrastructure funding to make those areas happen mm. is I, I think we need better tools for that mm. and we need better tools to be able to roll out that big those big items of trunk infrastructure because you've got a number of small parcels there's no one player who can afford to put in a big chunk of infrastructure so Funding mechanisms, I think, are really important. And then some of the uh, implementation mechanisms. Uh, as an example, when you've got fragmented land, um, someone trying to roll out a piece, uh, either a road or a piece of pipe or something like that, has to go across a number of properties. And at the present time, the only way of, of making that happen as a private player is generally to seek an agreement with an adjoining landowner. And um, developers being competitive, um, that you, there are some snags with that. New South Wales has um, a control which allows um, a developer to seek easements or access through adjoining properties. So we need to look at some of that. And I think we also need to look at the infrastructure charging framework because um, it's um, it's not working well enough in those new greenfield areas. The other thing I think is um, in the last couple of years, we've seen greenfield development um, be much stronger. We were seeing more infill, but um, the incentives that were provided mm. suited greenfield detached houses better. So yeah. that's obviously been a concentration in that area. And it's about what are those other forms of development, the missing middle? Um, how do we make those work? And there's some fantastic examples out there. It's just yeah. that we need to get that information out there. And we also need to go through that change management process with people. Uh, the, the typical household these days will not be our typical household in 20 years' time. We need to talk to people about housing for their kids or options for their parents or downsizing options for them. So there's, there's that change management that we need to go through. Um, so it, it's all linked in there, but funding is, is significant. Um, tools for dealing with fragmented land need to be mm. looked at. And that overall change discussion, I think we tend to do, we talk about change on an episodic basis every time we do a new regional plan. That discussion needs to be ongoing. Um, and it needs to be relevant to individuals so that mm. they understand the reason why little things happen, how they fit into the bigger picture. Yeah, it's quite a task, isn't it? Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> all right. Last question for you, Kerry. I know you love your data and your evidence. You've you've just mentioned there around trying to understand where the demand is coming from. So I'd I'd love to get your take on what some of the key trends that you're observing are, particularly, you know, through COVID and and what you're going to what we're going to see kind of stick around, what you think will continue into the future. Mm. Yeah, look, well we've all seen um the working from home phenomenon. I think that's going to be with us. Um, exactly how that works out, I think, will be important. I know there's been studies done recently and 
in in houses people want that working from home space that they can fit into um, that's also made a difference in terms of commuting um, and i think we've seen the uptake of technology through COVID and use of mediums like teams which we're on right now um, has made an incredible difference if you think about how society functions a lot of it is about getting people getting materials and getting information moved around and um, I think we've come probably 10 years ahead in terms of doing this sort of interaction and this transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the whole range of things that are disrupting, um, if you look at our housing needs, uh, mm-hmm. we're still building three and four bedroom houses as our most common form of housing. Mm-hmm. And yet the number of people in houses is going down. So more bedrooms for less people. Um, not very efficient. Some, yeah, well, it comes in handy sometimes when you're not allowed to sleep. Um, uh, it, it, if you're in trouble and you're in the doghouse, you've got a spare bedroom to fit into. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that just those different housing types, how, how they come along. I think um, disruption is, is um, there are things happening where looking back at the past doesn't help us. I was reading a paper about... Um, um, in Paris, there are a lot of distribution centres being set up in areas which used to be cafes and restaurants, and it's that uh, convenience thing. So if you run out of shampoo or dishwashing liquid, there's this warehouse, and they do that, they do Uber Eats type deliveries to all of these things, and that's causing disruption in terms of noise and hours of operation. Mm. Um, I was, um, you know drone technology, what that means in terms of building design um, mm. and deliveries, how, how all of that works. Um, and just new technologies. One of the examples I know is um, a discussion about a motor vehicle workshop in the valley at one stage and under a mixed use residential building. And would that work? And the, the conventional wisdom was no, cars make noise and fumes and dust and oil and things like that go mm. away. And they came back and said, but it's a Tesla workshop. So yeah, all of wow. a sudden, those past paradigms don't yeah. work for you. So it's about, um, you know, I think we as planners, when someone comes in and talks about something that's not, you know, we don't have a model to put it up against, is to, to actually think about objectives and outcomes with that. So there's um, a whole bunch of things happening there. And I, I spoke about our population. Um, we've had all this demand for housing. And yet we haven't had overseas migration mm. and something has gone gone skew with, with it. Um, the things I've heard are, are about a pull forward of demand and that'll catch up with us. Um, I've also heard fear of missing out drove a lot of the demand as well. And we're mm. seeing people getting their fingers burnt with house prices dropping and having to make forced sales. Um, I think things like short-term accommodation have also chewed into the market as well and people having a weekender. Um, so there's all these things chewing into the market. I think looking at things like um, granny flats and tiny houses and those sorts of things, we need to start to look at that because our, our current housing isn't suitable for what we need into the future. So those are just a few of the things that um, Occupy my brain. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, look, it's so fascinating. There are so many questions that come into my brain after hearing you speak, but um, I do want to wrap it up. I try and keep these episodes to 30 minutes. That seems to be the sweet spots for the listeners. So I I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Kerry. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Nicole. I'm happy to come back another time. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you for tuning into the Hustle and Bustle podcast this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and a review so that others find out about the show. You can follow us on Instagram, hustle underscore bustle underscore podcast and LinkedIn too. That's all from this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.